1: Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. It's 40 years since postmodernism swept through the academy, changing the character of the arts and social sciences, impacting everything from literary criticism and anthropology to art history and sociology. So should we seek to reverse the changes that postmodernism brought about and overturn its attack on the intellectual tradition of the West or was postmodernism a progressive force whose insights were largely correct? Joining us to debate whether we are right to abandon postmodernist thinking, our co-founder and editor of the Philosopher's Magazine, Julian Bugini, award-winning journalist Mina Salami, radical philosopher Hilary Lawson, and boundary-pushing feminist Julie Bindle. I'll now hand you over to our host for this debate, journalist and author David Aronovich.
2: Okay, well, it's 40 years since postmodernism swept through the academy, changing the character of the arts and social sciences, impacting everything from literary criticism to anthropology, art history to sociology. Soon after it invaded culture generally, as technical terms such as deconstruction became widespread, yet now its critics, including members of the British cabinet, argue it ushered in an era of tribal conflict, woke culture. And populist deception, and is at the source of a pernicious decline in reason and objective truth. Should we seek to reverse the changes that postmodernism brought about and overturn its attack on intellectual tradition of the West? Or was postmodernism a progressive force whose insights were largely correct? Or do we need a new radical approach altogether? Now to our speakers. Julian Bergini is a British philosopher, journalist, and author of over oh, 20 philosophical books. Brigini has researched and published on a wide array of topics, including personal identity, the philosophy of food, the European Union, British liberty, and even Jordan Peterson's 12 rules for life. Henry Lawson is a post-postmodern philosopher and a renowned critic of philosophical realism. He is best known for his work on reflexivity and his theory of closure, which puts forward a non-realist metaphysics, arguing that we close the openness of the world with our thought and language. Mina Salani is a journalist, feminist, and author. She recently authored Sensuous Knowledge, A Black Feminist Approach for Everyone, and The Power Book. What is it? Who has it? And why? As a key public figure, she's spoken at over 200 universities, cultural events and conferences spanning over five continents. Julie Bindle is a radical feminist writer, journalist and author. She's the co-founder of the law reform group Justice for Women. Bindle's work has focused on male violence against women and children, prostitution, stalking, religious extremism and human trafficking. And I'm completely exhausted now. I mean, I'm really tired. So I'm going to hand over to each of our uh, panellists. So we have three-minute pitches, and we're going to start with you, Julian.
3: Okay. Well, I've got to admit, I'm one of those, uh, these many people who, who about 20 years ago, after 9/11, was sort of dancing on the grave of postmodernism, and I wrote a, a piece about that. And at the time, I was kind of of the view that there really wasn't a, a philosophy of postmodernism in the first place to really dance on the grave of that it had become this sort of lazy catch-all word for anything that was to do with, you know, denying truth and objective reality, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera except of course we're going to talk about postmodernism in art and architecture and which is a very different thing and that's alive and well in fact so alive and well that prince charles has built a postmodernist town near dorchester and no one's even noticed it's postmodernist we can talk about that later maybe but actually since then i think the, the problem with this is the term because the term is used in this lazy broadway to kind of capture anybody who has anything critical to say skeptical to say about truth anyone who's any kind of like relativist Whereas actually, you know, since writing that piece, which I, I, I would now rewrite if I had a chance, you know, having read Lyotard's The Postmodern Condition, which was in 1979, <laughs> got it all going, it's a great book. It's a really, really good book. And the point about the book is this, that the subtitle is called A, a Report on Knowledge. And what you've got to understand is that what it's about, it's not a kind of a theory of truth in a way, or a theory of knowledge in that kind of traditional philosophical sense. It's rather a description of what passes for knowledge in our society, how it is produced, how it is controlled, and how it is used. And as that kind of almost like sociological critique of knowledge. It was extremely prescient and, and right on the money. And in fact, Leotard foresaw all sorts of things. He even wrote about what we'd recognize as the kind of gig, or gig economy, that the kind of fraction, fractioning of society. So one thing, one thing postmodernism is always about is about the destruction of the grand unifying narratives, the idea there's no longer a single story which everyone can agree with and buy up to, which gives us our common values and purpose. That's just evidently true. And Leotard saw how this fracturing would lead to sort of certain opportunities again for, for certain people to take advantage of that. And the, he talks essentially about the gig economy without using the term. So I actually think that, you know, I think postmodernism has a future if we get back to what Leotard meant by it and we get to understand it as a, as a means of trying to understand the control and production of knowledge in our society rather than see it as a a theory of truth in in a more recognizable traditional sense. Brilliant timing. Mina.
0: So I agree with a lot of what Julian has said. In terms of whether we should reject postmodernism, I think it might be useful to just kind of condense. It's obviously postmodernism is a really complex theory that that spans decades. But the core argument of postmodernism, which is that everything is a... What social constructs are what have created gender, race, identity, basically. I think it's something that, first of all, is really shaping our culture, arts, knowledge production, but it's also far more, it's kind of far more exciting, but also far more problematic than it may first appear. So it's exciting because it's postmodernism really it shakes the foundation of knowledge production in saying that social constructions that gender race identity are social constructions and so it creates this kind of fertile ground it's it's philosophically a rich idea i would say which is quite exciting but it's it's problematic also in saying that everything is a social construct because it fosters a sense of everything being malleable and and fluid, and I think that that's partly because postmodernism has infiltrated our culture. That's partly why there's this growing sense of alienation and disorientation that people feel because it, it kind of it both gives the illusion of more power because if you believe that everything is a discourse, then there's. The sense that you can reshape institutions through language. But simultaneously, that also gives an illusion of, of, or it can make you feel less powerful, because ultimately, words are just words. And like Julian was saying, I think part of the problem with postmodernism is that people use it as a kind of bogeyman to, to explain everything that's wrong in society. It's a little bit like how people use the term neoliberalism. So without really understanding what postmodernism is about, we kind of assign it with a lot of blame for everything that's wrong. So what I think we need to do is to engage with postmodernism more critically. And what I think happens then is that we see that it's both more exciting and more challenging than it initially appears to be, but also that there's a need for other ways of knowing and that there are possibilities for other ways of knowing. Postmodernism is certainly not um, perfect and shouldn't be the kind of final destination. Thank you, Mila.
4: Julie. Well, as a feminist that deals in material reality, I find postmodernism very problematic. But actually feminists, the second wave feminists, were the very first to pose gender as a social construct and as distinct from sex. And so those early feminists, and Simone de Beauvoir is always misquoted on this, when she talked about one isn't born a woman, one becomes a woman. That, That doesn't actually mean that sex is not a material reality what she meant was that gender is a social construct that is imposed upon and harms women but actually benefits men and then of course Judith Butler comes along and says that this is all a performance possibly this wouldn't wash well with the women in Afghanistan at the moment or the girls in menstrual huts in Nepal or the woman Sophie Moss who was choked to death by Sam Pybus and who recently was given four years in prison because this is something that she asked for and wanted. I mean, I'm sure death isn't a social construct for the many women who are the victims of femicide around the world. And in fact, one of the, the other problems with, with some of the more digestible aspects of postmodernism is, of course, the rewriting of sexual violence, such as by Foucault, as something that is merely a choice or unproblematic. And Foucault, of course, as far back in 1977, campaigned to change the French rape law so that it became a physical attack, the same as me punching someone in the face, as opposed to a sex crime. And feminists had said, this is a sex crime, and it's really important that we say this because, of course, I've been punched in the face and I've also been raped, and I'm here to tell you that very, very different experiences. And so that imposition of a rewriting of sexual violence extends of course also to child sexual abuse. Foucault again, but not just Foucault, Gail Rubins, Pat Califia, and, and other postmodernists who would argue that for the abolition of the age of consent and of course feminists in various countries around the world, fought for an age of consent, not because we're anti-sex prudish moralists, but because of male sexual violence and abuse towards children being so prevalent. And Foucault argued passionately for an end to that age of consent, and in fact said, I think I have one of his quotes here, that in fact it's just about how children experience sex with adults, not about it being wrong fundamentally. So, you see where I'm going with this. If we start calling female genital mutilation, which postmodernist academics do, not all but most, cutting, if we redefine it, you take the, the power from that phrase that has been developed and used by feminists in those countries, societies, and cultures where it is prevalent. If we start looking at the global sexual abuse of women in prostitution, decide that it's sex work and that the pimps are managers. This is but another manifestation of the way that language can sanitise what feminists have been fighting to put on the agenda legally, socially, politically and personally for decades. And that is my problem with postmodernism. Julie, thank you very much. Hilary.
2: So postmodernism
5: is often seen as responsible for the attack on objective truth, which the other panelists here have identified as become commonplace in our culture and blamed for all sorts of things. The first point I'd like to make is that the attack on objective truth doesn't stem from postmodernism at all. I mean, postmodernism was a latecomer to the story it starts at least a few hundred years earlier. Kant was perhaps the first major philosopher to identify the importance of concepts in determining how we both make sense of and experience the world. The 20th century was a history of the uncovery of the perspectival character of knowledge. I mean, it began with, with uh, tales of different cultures having radically different social and moral views, from ourselves. It uh, proceeded with awareness of the importance of language and the extent to which language changes how we make sense of the world. It moved on to a recognition that the theories that scientists put forward change the way they interpret the facts. So by the time we get to postmodernism in the 1970s, we've already recognized the perspectival character of knowledge, that knowledge is a function of our history, a function of our society, a function of our culture, a function of our language, and of course, a function of our physiology, the way our brain actually happens to choose to pattern the world. So by the time that postmodernism arrives, it just adds an additional twist to that and extends that. I mean, in the form of Derrida, I think it's probably the the, the major philosophical figure in, in that group. I would argue he, he goes as far as saying that you know meaning is undecidable, that the perspectives that we might bring to it mean that we can never quite get to the bottom of what we mean in any individual instance. So. I don't think the attack on objective truth comes from postmodernism. It's not like a bunch of French intellectuals have suddenly decided to attack the major institutions of our culture. Indeed, the attack on objective truth comes from within the Enlightenment. It is a result of looking and observing the world, looking to see how we create our knowledge, how we develop our theories. That has led us to recognize the importance of perspective and to recognize the difficulty of being able to reach through that perspective to see an ultimate version of objective truth. So I don't think that we can just simply go back to a belief in objective knowledge. We'd have to abandon the very enlightenment that was needed that we apparently want want to have in order to go back. We, however, do need to go forward And the reason that we need to go forward is because, as again, a number of the uh, other panelists have said, there are versions of what we can call postmodernism, which are indeed pernicious. The idea that every outlook is uh, equal, that, that your particular circumstances and experience are enough to justify any view is undoubtedly really problematic. And so that's the puzzle. What do we do about that? So I think we have to move forward from postmodernism. And I think the way we move forward from postmodernism is not to move back to truth. I think we have to give up truth and instead see our theories and our accounts of the world as tools that we use to get things to happen. And like any tool, we can make it better or worse. It's not like every tool is equivalent to every other one. And we use the Enlightenment principles of observation and reason in order to refine our tools. That's how we make them better. We use this tool to see where it goes wrong and then we correct it. So I think we double down on observation and reason, but we have to give up the idea that
2: we might somehow ultimately arrive. Okay, arising from that is our first big question out of what you said was, is there such a thing, can there be such a thing as the objective truth? Or at the very least, since that seems to be quite a crude question in some ways, are there things which are significantly truer than others? I'm going to ask you all, but Hillary first.
5: So obviously, as I've just said, I think we have to give up on objective truth. One of the rather strange things is people who who hold a a relativist view, and uh, indeed I'm a critic of relativism, it's not possible to express the view there is no truth without being self-referentially incoherent, because if you say there is no truth, are you saying it's true that there is no truth? So you've got a problem. So you can't do that. But a lot of relativists imagine that it means you can just have your view, and your view is true. You you believe in truth. I think we do have to give up on that. We have to recognize that our ways of holding the world enable us to do things, and some of those are much more powerful than others. And some of them are, are unpleasant and vicious, and we need to try and get rid of them. But we get rid of them on the basis of whether they work or not, how they, how they operate, what effect they have on our culture, not on the basis of looking to see whether they are ultimately true, because that's not
2: possible. We can't escape our perspective. Okay, so when I woke up, when I was brought out of a coma 10 years ago and I was psychotic and was hallucinating, and then for some reason I woke up again and I was no longer hallucinating, was the moment when I was no longer hallucinating as untrue as when I was hallucinating? Well, it is of course the case that we can have, as I say,
5: more or less effective ways of understanding things. And if you are suffering from a condition in which you are unable to make sense of the world and you, you, know, you think your breakfast is a hippopotamus then it's not a very viable way of operating. You've got, it's going to go radically wrong. But it's not as if the alternative is to think I, that I know exactly what is happening. I've got a, a single story about what is going And that story is true because there's an indefinite number of other ways of understanding what is going on at
2: any given point. Julie, over to you. And again, the same question, psychoanalysis would say to you, and a psychoanalyst therapist sitting you down and so on, you have at your session, would say to you, a lot of what you think you know about the world is actually your fantasy about it. It exists in your own head. And when you think about it, there's a lot of truth in that, or at least from Hillary's perspective, if you look at it in that way, a lot of things are can be more usefully defined.
4: Well, interestingly, people say this to me all the time, but not psychotherapists. <coughs> it's usually men, sometimes women. I'm very challenged by this panel, because you, know, you, you all make sense, but I can't tell you why. But I remember interviewing a man called Tom O'Carroll, who was the founder and a very big noise in the paedophile information exchange. And you'll remember there was a moment in the 1980s when there were, there were calls from the emerging queer movement to include child sexual abusers. I refuse to use the word paedophile. They're child rapists in the rainbow flag. And I asked O'Carroll what he thought about having sex with his preferred age group, which is uh, about four years old. He told me that this was far better than those horrible men that want to have sex with babies. So he's clearly a relativist. And he, he said to me that, I said, how can you tell? I, I had to, of course, speak to him on his level in order to get him to respond to my question. And I said, how can you tell when a four-year-old is sexually attracted to you, which is what he had said? And he said, well, they'll sit on my knee. They might cuddle into me in a particular way. They might offer me kisses and then i read a paper not long afterwards i do live in the saw so you know excuse me by a woman called elizabeth woods who's an american academic and pro prostitution activist a sexual extreme sexual libertarian and she was talking about the case for having sex with animals and she was talking about how her dog wags its tail and cuddles up to her and that's a sign that the dog wants to be penetrated. And it occurred to me that these are the most dangerous and bonkers ways of looking at something that we understand as a material reality. Because if you have sex with a four-year-old, that child is damaged and that child is in pain and that child is wanting you to stop. And that is a truth. Mina.
0: I think there is quite a lot to respond to. Um, Objective truths are important insofar as we have a need for objective truths. I mean, we we can achieve these kind of solid facts scientifically when it comes to technology, mathematics. I think the problem is when we try to apply objective truths to our sort of subjectivities and identities once again. So Europatriarchal knowledge has often created this notion that we can have objective truth about race, or gender, or, or class realities, for example. And that leads to this, it's a kind of circular logic, because that misguided approach to objective truth leads to institutions that do kind of cement them. So it is an objective truth, as Julie was pointing to, that there is a, a gender pay gap or that black men experience most violence at the hands of the police, or that class discrimination excludes people from arts and cultural institutions. These are objective truths. It's just that the politics that created those things in the first place are not. And this is where, you know, responding to Julie a little bit, I think that postmodernism kind of challenges that. And that's also in response to what Hillary was saying, and my initial point of postmodernism being philosophically rich in that sense, because it gives us a way that we can, we can challenge what I guess is actually the real problem, which is, you know, knowledge production that, is, that, that supports things like racism and sexism, so any kind of oppressive institutionalization. As a feminist or in feminist traditions, not every feminist would agree, but there's, there's, there has been arguments for what we might call uh, poetic truth and many feminists have used that as a, as a way of challenging this big patriarchal idea of objective truth. I would say that maybe it's something that kind of complements objective truth because there are times when we really need to try and figure out you know, the facts but also bringing in a, a kind of poetic truth, which means that there's just more space to think, as, as you were saying, you know, just to, to create new stories, new types of knowledge is something that's really important.
2: Thanks, Mina. Julian, you can now respond
3: to all three of us. To everybody, yeah. Well, look, there's, there's a very easy way of being a skeptic about anything, and you find it in philosophy throughout history, which is that you define the thing you want to be skeptical about in a way that makes it impossible for it to be achieved and then you celebrate the fact that it doesn't exist. And this happens with like free, free will, the self, and it happens with objectivity. And it's not a complete straw man, there is a certain notion of objectivity, which is that to be objectively true, it must be true in such a way that it has nothing at all to do, it's completely independent of any kind of perspective, it's like the God's eye view. And you know, to be fair, you know, Plato arguably did argue that perfect knowledge should be of that kind, He also argued that no one had it, of course. Um, So even he was acknowledging that it didn't exist, but he thought maybe we could get there. Um, But that's kind of, how could there be, I mean, Hillary talks about the perspectival nature of knowledge. And of course, there's no way human knowledge can ever completely escape from the limitations of our perspectives. But does that mean there's no sense in objectivity I don't think so. And I'll I'll, I'll refer to someone, a better philosopher than myself, Thomas Nagel, in his book, The View From Nowhere. The View From Nowhere is, of course, an ironic title. There is no view from nowhere. Every view is from somewhere. Perspectival nature of knowledge, again. But Nagel says, look, subjective and objective are not these opposites. They're kind of ideal points on a spectrum. And your understanding becomes more objective the less it depends on the particularities of your own viewpoint. And that's why, in things like science, you can get a very, very high degree of objectivity. Because the equations of physics are true. There'd be, if, if, if an alien could understand those equations, they wouldn't have to have any of the same sense apparatus as us at all. They would still be true. Where certain truths, I think, got things like race and identity, they're not like that. They're not, they're, they, they, they have a kind of inherent sort of subjectivity, they are more, part of our social structures in our society and so forth. So as long as you sort of don't think that objective means completely free from any kind of hint of perspective, it just means it's kind of a direction to go towards. We can have truths which are more objective. And you kind of have to have that. If you give up on that idea, you are left with the morass of, of, of anything goes. And, and, and Leotard, I'll just read this from Leotard, actually. It's very really interesting. He said that even a, the Nobel laureate biologist Peter Medaware believed that there is no scientific method and that a scientist is before anything else a person who tells stories. So far, so anything goes. But he adds the only difference is that he, the scientist, he, Note that um, is duty-bound to verify them. So Leotard recognises that in the science, in the sciences, there is that need for verification, which means that your claims have a, I'd say, a greater objectivity.
2: Now we've been nice and baggy about that session of questions, and we're going to shorten this next uh, one a bit because, in a way, it's kind of more observational and less philosophical, and it is about the question about. What the impact of postmodernism has been. There. Jules, you reflected a little bit on, uh, on that. After hearing what you've heard, would you stick to the notion that postmodernist concepts, as they have been utilized, have been damaging? Now, I, I came across, because we've all had to kind of look at this stuff, a 1999 rejection of Judith Butler by Martha Nussbaum, which in a way was kind of pointed forward to what it was that, was gonna, that she thought might happen. And I have a suspicion that you would think that it has happened.
4: Yes, and it's interesting. I was reading that paper recently. I think it's the Professor of Parody, is that right? And yes, I mean, I think it's had a terribly damaging effect on the academy, which then, of course, bleeds out into wider society and and pre-postmodernism. You know, our university's feminism was kind of taken over, to use an aggressive word, by feminist philosophers and feminist sociologists were pushed out of the equation, which means that applied knowledge, so the knowledge that was previously disseminated by those feminists that were also activists, got things done, wanted their research to have an influence on law, policy, society in general, became, I think, really dominated by more abstract thought. And Of course, there are specific aspects to Judith Butler's work that has led to a highly problematic erasure of the political category of women. Because if you, like me, recognize that women are a sex class, and men of course are a sex class, to, to erase woman as a category means that we can't actually achieve solidarity between women. And we're constantly looking at individual identities as though they somehow count for uh, structural oppression. So one brief example, asexuality, polyamory, right? In what way have asexuals or people in polyamorous relationships lost their housing, their families, or been beaten up on the street because of that individual identity? And so that, I think, is one of the results of... It's like identity politics, but without the politics. Mina, how do you react to that?
0: One of the things that comes to mind is how this question of... You know, obviously we need... Feminism needs some idea of... of, woman as a category, woman as a group, to to, to have to not lose its dry, But at the same time, I think there can also be, there's also room within feminism to, to complicate that category. I mean, woman is, is I think that the, the term woman is in many ways a, a male invention, a male project. I mean, Simone de Beauvoir says that, some, something to that. As well. And so we need to make space for those conversations. And I guess that might be one of the contributions that Judith Butler, in her, I mean, she's kind of as obscure maybe as postmodernism is. is you know, everybody speaks about Judith Butler's theories, but we don't get it, partly because she writes in such an obscure way. But I, I wonder if, if that conversation kind of is feminism you know, this this engagement with what it is to be a woman. Is it a construct? Is it not? And, you know, as Hilary was saying, this is a conversation, or was saying in terms of postmodernism and language, I think this woman question within feminism is what has been there from the very beginning. You know, when some women were fighting for suffrage, you had others th- debating, no, that's not what women do. And it, it's kind of always been about complicating that category. So, Yeah.
2: Hillary, we could conce- conceivably be talking about other damaging schools of philosophy. I don't know. I don't know whether there's, a big, uh, whether there's a balloon debate about somewhere about which ones you ditch and which ones you wouldn't and so on. But we're talking about this one. Insofar as it, has, as it has been influential in the political and wider sphere, do you think it's been beneficial or not? As I said at the beginning, I think there are lots of
5: aspects of the way that postmodern applied which are problematic. Um, Which would they be? Well, where, where it, it, it looks as if you can simply assert a view in the light of your particular perspective or view and say that is sufficient. It's sufficient that, that you have had this experience, you've had this understanding of things, and that's enough. And I think that's a misunderstanding. I, you know, of course, the key thing that's going on here in our conversation is that I think the notion of truth is theological. That is, I think that the very idea of truth is uh, it functions in the same way as God for a scientific world. It's something that we reach towards, but we can't get at. And I do think it is problematic. And so uh, you only have to look. uh, There are lots of different people who want to assert objective truth but they don't agree on their objective truths. They have radically different views. I mean, Pope Benedict is a a deep critic of objective truth. Liz Truss is a a deep critic of postmodernism. I doubt whether she has much in common with Julia's view of the world. And that's the first indication that there's something amiss here, that the people who are most assertive of objective truth, they don't agree, and they don't agree on what their objective truths are. And that points, I think, to what is going on underneath the surface, is that the desire to say it is just true is a desire to just say, I'm right. I've got it right, and there isn't an alternative, and, that's, and to draw a close to that conversation. And I don't think we can ever do that, but that doesn't mean to say we don't give up on the key vital bits of the Enlightenment, which were observation, watching to see what the consequences of your account of the world is, and reason, looking to see, oh, but that bit doesn't fit with this bit. That If you hold that view, you've got to hold this view. That's what we have to double down on. We have to double down on those key things especially in a situation where we,
2: we've given up on a theological truth. Thanks very much, Hilary. We're tight for time on this one, Julian, before we come on to the kind of what next uh, explosion that we're going that we're What? Going I might be able to fold it. So <laughs> I want, fold it. So <laughs> wanted to ask you this forever, and forgive me, should Foucault, Foucault?
3: <laughs> oh, very good. I like that. Well, look, part, of the, part of the problem is that Postmodernism in the Dock is a title. but really not postmodernism. I mean, Foucault never identified as a postmodernist, neither did Derrida. I mean, the, the, the term is used so loosely, it's become sort of almost ridiculous. But the, what I think people have identified as a problem is a certain kind of way in which ideas have filtered down and got current, common currency and have various different sources. And it's basically the idea that there is there, nothing but stories we tell, nothing but the narratives we create ourselves. That's been the real problem. And that does lead to this kind of thing, if I feel it, it's true thing. Which was brilliantly parodied in The Simpsons, an episode where Homer Simpson is accused of sexual harassment. And somebody is interviewing a, a witness. And she says, I've never seen Homer Simpson. I don't know Homer Simpson. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't go on. And the presenter says, That's okay, your tears say far more than any facts could ever do. You
4: know?
3: <laughs> um, and that, that kind of like primacy of my experience, because if there's, if there's only stories, if there are only narratives, and there's nothing to choose between them, then the ultimate authority has to becomes the individual, and then for a start, the problem with that is there's no possibility of conversation, because if I question, if I disagree with your perception, then I'm threatening your identity and your right to your own truth, and that is really, really problematic. But I just don't think this is about postmodernism, frankly. I'm afraid. Okay, fine, <laughs> fine. And we're
2: all in the wrong tent.
4: All in the wrong tent. Um, He tells uh, us now. So
0: let's
2: move on to the kind of... uh, And construct some kind of grand uh, philosophical projet for the future, which I think is your baby, really, Hillary. If we are going to move on from postmodernism, what should we move on to? You've given your critique. You've given a a suggestion of the direction. Can you flesh it out?
5: Well, I think... You know, when, when I first put forward a, a, this, a non-realist theory, which is for, you know 20 years ago now, which was called closure, which said we should think of the world as being open and we close it in, with our experience and our, our thoughts, it was a challenge to what was the dominant view at the time, which was realism. I think that what's happened more recently is that increasingly figures from neuroscience, and scientists are coming to the same view, that the way that our brains work is not to somehow describe what's out there, but is a response to the world. And so uh, figures like David Eagleman, neuroscientist at Stanford, uh, says things like, you know, reality is an illusion. And that's as a result of looking to see how we form our ideas of the world, how, how consciousness as it works. And I think that what we, what we need to do is to recognize that our accounts of the world and indeed our experience of the world is a response to it, and we use that to intervene. And we can use it to intervene better or worse. And we have to refine the ways that we respond to the world, as it were, in order to make it more Good. effective. So how do we tell what's better and what's worse? Well, based on our own assessment of what we're trying to achieve. So if a baby is is hungry, and I'm sure many of the parents of you will have had the experience of babies, will identify all sorts of things as food. Oh, that's food. That's food. That's food. But they try it. They try it. Does that work as food? And it doesn't work as food. It turns out to be a plug. And, and so gradually, they refine their account, their story about, well, no, you know, is, is this food or not, in the light of the experience of applying that idea. And so they refine their, their, their account. But that doesn't mean to say they've been able to reach through and that there really is a thing called food out there. It's just a tool to enable us to intervene. And we've got decades, millennia of human civilization which has grown effective ways of of intervening. And we share those between ourselves. We share the good ways of intervening. But we shouldn't imagine that they're descriptions. They're not descriptions of the world. They are tools to intervene in the world. And we therefore need to focus on how we make those tools better and always have a bit of humility that our way of seeing the world is not an ultimate way. It's one way of intervening, and we may we can argue for it very strongly because we think it's going to be successful. And other ones are really dangerous. We can do all of that, but we shouldn't imagine that we ever arrive.
2: Um, Julian. Ha- What's your response to that? Yeah,
5: I mean, I think there's a kind of, what would you call it, lethophobia? I don't
3: know my Greek. It's a sort of fear of truth, fear of reality. These have become real bogeymen. I think this is just to get, get over this, right? I think the fear is that we, I mean, what's the harm in, in, in saying, yes, the baby does identify certain things as food and not as food. It is true that it's food. Why would one be afraid to say that? Because, well in Hillary's view, it implies this closure. But in a sense, I think there's this great worry that if we say there's such things as reality and truth, it's gonna be a way to shut down the conversations, become authoritarian, it's becoming limiting. And I I think that's just simply not true. right? What we've gotta recognize is that in science and in philosophy, we've understood full well the, the, the virtues you need of open-mindedness and non-dogmatism and being open to the fact that there are different versions of a story that can be told are all entirely compatible with us using the language of truth and reality. And I just think that we're throwing out babies with the plug or the, uh, in, in, in analogy here, and that we, do, we shouldn't be afraid of the words of truth and reality, just, just remember, these things do not mean that things are um, set in stone that we know them and that debate is over, and you can shut up if you disagree with me. Um,
2: Mina, do you get what Hillary's saying?
0: <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. No, but
2: for, 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 for an old hack like me, it's much easier to understand what Julian's, uh, what, what Julian's saying means. I mean, Hillary expresses this very clearly, but I would struggle to write, a, to, to write for a newspaper and, write, uh, 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 and to write stories based on what he's saying. I think I would. What do you think?
0: I get parts of what Hillary is saying. Um, I get, it's you know it's it's complex ideas. I, th- I think the issue for me, and there's there's a contradiction I think in in the argument, which is that you know on the one hand, yes, there's there's room for or there should be room for like objective facts and hard truths, but we should also see them as tools. The the issue is that. So long as we, we promote this idea of there being such hard, solid facts, that encourages a kind of arrogance and overconfidence, I think, in, in knowledge production. That's a, and that's a real issue that we have to find ways to tackle because arrogance and overconfidence when it comes to knowledge production, in my view, actually it's not only dangerous in terms of the, the kind of destructive and often violent institutions that that creates because it, it, it you know it, it, it does compromise people's lived experiences if they don't belong to a certain tradition, but it actually even it, it has a, the bigger consequence that it isn't producing true knowledge or a, a particular kind of true knowledge, which requires I think a sense of Humility was a word you used earlier. And I would just add to that that I think, therefore, that feminism actually is, you know, it, it's a kind of alternative that has a lot of power and has existed for a long time, of course, but we don't see it as, as providing an alternative to postmodernism or or to kind of uh, reductive enlightenment values. And I think that feminism, not, not the type that has been muddled by conversations uh, about postmodernism and a kind of intersectionality that people don't really necessarily understand what it means or end up co-opting it, but this core value in feminism that that we need to abolish patriarchy, kind of in the same way that uh, abolitionists sought to to abolish uh, the transatlantic slave trade, that really
4: presents uh, a way of bringing clarity, I think, to how we, we need new ways of knowing.
2: Thanks, Mina. Jules.
4: In the 1980s, there was a movement by men's rights activists to say that women do it too. Domestic violence, sexual assault, child abuse. That this was not an issue about male power, dominance, or men as a sex class and women's subservience. This was an equal playing field. And they convinced many, many policymakers, and it ricocheted right into the 2000s. Because they said, look, with the ONS figures where data was being collected about domestic abuse, they said, look how many men have actually admitted that they are the victims of domestic violence by women in intimate relationships. It was something staggering, like 40%. And then when you drill down, of course, you saw that the definition that they were using was that they were nagged. That she nagged him, took out the bins. You didn't take out the bins. Or alleged infidelity, which is the excuse that many men use when they kill their, their partners or former partners. And When I was asked about this, and I was asked, yes, but you know, you talk about coercive control. It doesn't have to be physical domestic violence, so why can't their being harangued constantly by their wives count as domestic violence? And I just said, okay, look at the morgues, look look which are the dead bodies, are they men or women that have died as a result of domestic violence? and then look at the various domestic violence refuges that men's rights activists set up, a bed had never been slept in. Thanks, Jim. I thought
2: the panel were terrific, and so if you'd like to join with me in thanking them.
1: (laughs) Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice And visit our website, ii.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world-leading thinkers.
0: Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.